Well, with this sermon right now, I close out three decades of preaching Easter Sunday sermons. And someday, I pray that I will get one right. And I mean that honestly, honestly, I mean that. That is not fake humility. That's not some ploy to work up your sympathy toward me or to say, now, Craig, don't talk that way about yourself. You're not that bad. No, listen, listen. This is not about me. It's not about me getting it right. This is about Christ. Today is about getting Christ right. That's the point. The glory of the resurrected Christ is of such greatness and grandeur. The glory of the resurrected Christ is of such peerless preeminence. The glory of the resurrected Christ is of such monumental majesty and an entire string of other words that I could use to describe that glory. But it's so great that I feel completely inadequate to capture it, to fully understand it, and then to communicate it to you. It is no empty prayer when the Apostle Paul tells the Christians at Ephesus that he is praying for them, praying that the Father of glory would give them the spirit of wisdom to know Christ, praying that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they would know the glorious inheritance in the saints, to know the incomparably great power of God who by his mighty strength raised Christ from the dead, seated him, at the right hand, in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Do you see the importance of seeing the glory of Christ? Paul does, and that's why he prays that it will happen. Easter Sunday is no different from any other Sunday and that it is an opportunity for God's people to look together at the glory of Christ. But it is special in the fact that it marks the one unique, unrepeatably, unrepeatable, literally earth-shaking, glorious day in human history whereby the power of God, a dead Savior, became a living Savior. He walked out of the tomb alive. And he was carrying this gift for us. Here, 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 here. Here is living hope. Gloriously offered by a gloriously resurrected Savior. And so my goal this morning is simply to do this. To crown him the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing. Who died and rose on high. Who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Glorious. You and I must see the glory of Christ so that we put our hope in God.
Toward that end, I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles if you have them. If you don't have one with you, there should be one on the pew, in the pew rack in front of you. And when you have your Bible in hand, would you please take it and turn toward the end of the New Testament to the first letter of the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. And when you found your place there, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the one and only true and living God. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would bless your word to your people. Meet us here in your word through the power of your spirit. Open the eyes of our hearts to see your glory. Change us because we've seen it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. The glory of Christ is most compellingly seen in the resurrection of Christ. And the most Compelling evidence for me about the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not the arguments that the apologists set forth to defend it. Logically, going through the evidence of why the resurrection really could have happened. Carefully debunking all those theories that Jesus did not actually die on the cross because... The possibility of the resurrection is so troubling to them, they find it easier just to say that Jesus never really died in the first place. Now listen, these arguments are good. These defenses are important. And they appeal to the mind. And I am so thankful for every one of them. Our faith is sure because the resurrection is certain. But I look not only at the words that Peter writes here, but I look at the way in which he writes them. Because the way in which he writes them exposes not only his mind, but also his heart. And that's what's compelling to me. Peter and the Apostle John are often linked together in Scripture. 
We read over and over, Peter and John, Peter and John. Well, John wrote this in the first chapter of his gospel. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, Peter and John and James and all the rest, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so when Peter picks up his pen to write these verses, it's the glory of Christ that flows from them. Here's what I mean. Would you look again in verse 18? Peter writes there, you were ransomed. You were ransomed. We're going to talk more about that a little later. Then he continues in verse 19, and he writes that that ransom was with the precious blood of Christ. Now, Peter could have stopped there. You were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, period. And that would have been enough. It's all we need. It would have been enough, especially if Peter was focused just on us, because this is the most important truth for us. It's the one truth that sets us on our own road to glory. Listen to what Jesus prayed to his father in the upper room. Father, the glory you gave me, I have given to them. There's glory for us. But for these ones, like Peter, who have seen the glory of Christ, they can't leave the focus on themselves. And so Peter, this glory seer, this glory receiver begins to soar just at the mention of the name of Jesus. And so he continues in verse 19. Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. He's our great high priest who became a sacrifice for us. Glory, Christ, foreknown before the foundation of the world. He is eternal and he has an eternal plan. Glory, Christ, Manifest in these last times, he became incarnate glory. Christ, manifest for your sakes. Here is his mercy and his love and his compassion. Glory. Christ, through him, you are believers. He's reconciled us to God. Glory. Christ, raised from the dead by God. Glory. Christ, given glory by God as he took his seat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty glory these people to whom Peter writes they've not seen Jesus but Peter has and Peter knows that seeing the glory of Jesus is not limited to seeing Jesus with your physical eyes clearly just from these verses The glory of Christ has not diminished in Peter's eyes in light of the fact that he hasn't seen his friend physically for 30 years. No, the glory of Christ has only increased now in this old man, Peter, because the eyes of his heart are open to see it. Up in verse 8, Peter writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so, yes, Peter's heart soars at the thought of the glory of Christ. And he wants others to see it. Why? Because God gave glory to Jesus for a very specific reason. Look in verse 21, 20 and 21. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So that your faith and your hope are in God. This is why God gave such glory to Jesus. Because when we see the glory of Jesus, we will know that yes, there is a God. And we will put our faith and we will put our hope in him. Nothing else. Listen, nothing else in this world should be the rightful object of your faith or your hope except the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God gave glory to Christ because he loves us. Because God doesn't want us living this life in this world without hope. Because he doesn't want us living this life in this world without faith. And why do we need this faith and this hope? Because the life that you and I live, apart from Christ, is futile. Look in verse 18. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. This word futile just means idle, empty, fruitless, useless, powerless, lacking truth. That's a futile life. I'll illustrate it futility with this ancient Greek myth. Sisyphus was the king of Corinth. And he offended Zeus and Hades, and it doesn't matter in what way. But for the crimes that he had committed, he was consigned to roll a boulder up a steep hill. But whenever he reached or neared the top of the hill, the enchanted boulder escaped him and it rolled back down and he had to begin all over again. Day after day after day, this is futility, useless effort, unending frustration from pointless work. That's futility. Can you feel it? This is a quote from a book entitled Wreck and Sinking of the Titanic, the ocean's greatest disaster, and it was written shortly after the Titanic sunk. Quote, Among the many wealthy passengers sailing on Titanic's maiden voyage was Major Arthur Godfrey Poochin, I guess that's how you say it, who survived while 11 other millionaires died. Poochin remembered returning to his stateroom and stuffing three oranges in his pockets as the ship was being evacuated. He left cash, securities, and jewelry 
worth more than $300,000. I googled it. Yes, that's over $9 million today. But he took three oranges. Now, what had the major done to accumulate that wealth? How many years had it taken him to accumulate that wealth? What sacrifices had he made to accumulate that wealth? What good deeds has he done along the way? What bad and nefarious ones had he done? It doesn't matter because in the end, futile, abandoned, traded for three oranges that might sustain his life for just a little longer. All that he accumulated was useless in the most important moment of his life. Nothing that he had could ease his physical distress or calm his spirit or enable him to face death calmly and fearlessly. In the moment he saw all that he had for what it was, futile, empty, and he left it behind. You and I say, well, our lives are not idle. They're not empty. That's our problem. We have too much to do, too much to do, too much to do. But listen, let me ask, what's the point of all that activity? Why are you doing all the things that you were doing? Each one of us here in this room has to answer that question for ourselves. Believer and unbeliever alike. If Christ is at the center of all of your life, if Christ is at the center of that work that you have to continue to do, that family that you have to continue to keep, the recreations that you continue to do, if in all of that you are seeking to fulfill the chief purpose for which you have been created, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And please don't miss that. Please don't miss that. Glorifying God is not boring. Glorifying God brings us such joy. But if you're doing that in your life, there's richness and depth. If you're not doing that, futility. God told the people in the days of the prophet Haggai, people who were busy, 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 building bigger and bigger houses for themselves, busy, 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 accumulating more stuff for themselves instead of building the house of the Lord, bringing glory to God. And so God said this to them, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Just like that. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house, which ended up being futile. Futile means simply to lead to no thing fulfilling or satisfying, to lead to no good end or no good purpose. Life lived apart from Christ is futile. Now, as offensive as that may sound to a culture, like ours, where any way you choose to live is accepted and affirmed as good and meaningful for you, where nothing is canceled, except, of course, the 
truth of God and the Word of God that tells us how to live lives that work well, to live lives consistent with the way that He has wired us when He created us in His very own image. And as much as church growth experts would say to me, Craig, this is not a day on which to say such things when visitors are present. Forget it. I've got to say that the people who heard this letter read would not have taken offense because they knew that what Peter had written was true. They had experienced the futility of life without Christ. They knew the emptiness of life without Christ. Even when they had everything they thought they wanted futile, they knew their life before Christ and they knew their life after Christ and they would make no argument against what Peter had said. They would not have defended that old way of life and they would have not wanted to go back to it. Why? Because they had seen the glory of the resurrected Christ. You are free. You are free to choose to live any way you want to live. You are free to choose to defend futility. You are free to choose to call it by a cultural name. And I can't keep up with all the labels in our culture these days. They're always changing. But the truth is, it's still futile. John Stott writes this. Easter says... You can put truth in a grave, but it won't stay there. You can nail truth to a cross, wrap it in winding sheets, and shut it up in a tomb, but it will rise. The truth is, Christ has better for you than a futile life. And herein lies His glory. And what He has done for you and for me On the cross, in his mighty work on the cross, Christ shines. He's splendid. He's radiant. And that's what glory means. Glory means brightness and splendor and radiance. It's why actors have latched on to the word star, is it not? Because on the stage or on the screen, they shine and they hope to receive glory for it. That cheapens true glory. The glory of Christ is seen in what he has done on our behalf. What has he done? Look again in verse 18. He has ransomed us from futile ways. Ransom means to free by paying a price, a ransom. And ransom carries the connotation that something is held captive that needs to be released. Every ransom note that's ever been written has demanded a price. Money or some sort of payment before the hostage is let go. Well, you and I are the ones held hostage to futility, to sin, consigned to that life. Even when we are at our busiest and most successful, Jesus has ransomed us. From a futile way of living. He's rescued us from meaninglessness. And hopelessness. Brought about by sin. And what has he paid? What's the price? Not silver and gold. Peter writes here. And when I read. Now I read people. 
You know I'm usually winding up at this time, and I know you thought on Easter Sunday, well, Craig will be extra short today because of the visitors. Abandon hope. (laughs) Craig is longer this morning than he's been in a long time. But when I read silver and gold from the pen of Peter, my mind goes back immediately to the days that followed Peter's very first sermon where for the first time in human history, the resurrection of Christ was preached and 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. That sermon wasn't many days after Jesus' resurrection, and this event happened right after that sermon. Peter and the apostle John were entering into the temple. And as they went in through the gate, they encountered a man begging there. And this beggar asked Peter and John for some money. Scripture says, Peter directed his gaze right at that man and said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And the man leapt to his feet and he went into the temple with Peter and John, walking and leaping And praising God. Silver, no. Gold, no. Peter didn't have it. Peter didn't need it. Because he had seen the glory of the resurrected Christ. And that's all he needed. I wonder what would have happened. If Peter had not really been looking for the glory of Christ in that moment. If he did not know the value of the blood of Christ and had instead done the easy thing and tossed a coin or two to that beggar and gone on his way instead of giving Christ to that man. The beggar would have withered at the gate in the futility of begging. No, Jesus did not pay the price with silver or gold. He paid the price for us with his blood. And when Peter writes blood there, he really means life. Because God has said, for the life is in the blood. And when Peter writes about that life, he describes it as precious. And precious doesn't mean sweet, like we think it means. When we look at a little puppy... Oh, isn't he precious? No, precious means of great, exceptional worth. Do you understand the exceptional worth of the blood of Christ? Robert Layton was a 17th century Scottish, 17th century Scottish pastor and scholar. And he was noted for his piety and his humility and his gentleness and his devotion. And he wrote a book entitled An Exposition of First Peter. And I'm so glad I have that book. It is actually the standard. And almost every commentator you read will somewhere along the way quote Robert Layton. Listen to what he writes. Provide this answer. For all the enticements of sin and the world. 
So when the world entices you, when sin entices you, Leighton says that we should say this, except you can offer my soul something beyond that price that was given for it on the cross, I will not listen to you, except that you can offer my soul something beyond the price that was given for it on the cross, I will not listen to you, far be it from me. That ever I should prefer a base lust or anything in this world or all of the world to him who gave himself to death for me and paid my ransom with his blood. His matchless love hath freed me from the miserable captivity of sin. Let him alone to dwell and rule within me and never let him go forth from my heart. Who? For my sake, refused to come down from the cross. Who, for my sake, refused to come down from the cross. That's glory. And this is what Christ has done for us. For us. Listen to what Peter writes. You were ransomed. That's passive. Christ paid the price for you. That's glory. Christ was manifest. He came to earth for your sake. He did it. Glory. You are believers through him. He did it. Glory. God resurrected Jesus and gave him glory for a reason so that our faith and our hope might be in God. This is how much he loves you. And for the sake of you here this morning, all of you, myself included, I'm going to finish by telling us all the truth. You've got to hear the truth. You've got to know the truth. This is not, and I pray, never will be a therapeutic pulpit. And by that, mean, uh, by that I mean uh, a place where people come so that they can feel better about themselves. No. This is a place, and this is a pulpit, to feel better about Christ and worse about yourself. That's the entire point. The truth is, and here it is, all of us are really, really bad. Sin has made us that way, and yet, and yet, for our sake, even in our badness, Christ came to rescue us, to ransom us, because you are of great worth to Christ. Can I say that again? You are of great worth to Christ. Is that good news? Other people use and manipulate us. If they give to us, they give to get in return. Advance themselves in some way, but not with Christ. He gave freely and requires nothing in exchange except faith and hope. That's it. Christ did it all. He gave it all. And he requires only this from us, our faith and our hope to be in him. Glory. I hope I've shown you just a little bit of it this morning. The glory of Christ. To you here this morning who are believers in Christ, keep looking for the glory. Every situation, even if it's a beggar at the gate, where is the glory of Christ in this and how can it be shown forth? Always seek more and more glory. 
Clearly, I don't know all of you here this morning, and some of you may not be believers in Christ. But I want you to know this. Christ can make your life meaningful. Christ can make your life meaningful. He can free you from futility. He can release you from the bondage and the slavery and the burden and the guilt that you carry because of your sin. The striving and striving after what you think you need, Christ will give you for free. And like the people who receive this letter, once you experience, once you experience, ah, once you experience the ransom of Christ, once you experience new life in Christ, you will never want to go back. Put your faith. Put your hope in Christ. His glories now we sing. Who died and rose on high. Who died eternal life to give. And lives that death may die. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We pray simply this now. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the glory of Christ. For we pray it in Jesus name. Amen.